Well, good morning, family. Let's take just a moment and let's come to the Lord as we prepare to come to His Word. Father, we are so grateful that You have not left us here with uh, to figure things out on our own, to muddle through, but You have given to us Your Word. You have spoken to us. Here in Your Word, we, we learn of You. Here in Your Word, we, we learn all that we need to know for life and godliness, for eternal life. It is here that we learn of our Savior and the good news of salvation. So I pray this morning that we will be attentive as we come to Your Word, that You will speak to us through Your Word, that the Holy Spirit would cause Your Word to come alive in our minds and in our hearts, that we will not leave here the same as when we came. Father, may Your Word change us. May Your Word draw us near to You. So to that end, we commit ourselves. We ask Your grace and Your blessing. And we do so in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Today we come to Noah and the ark. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 6. Even many people who don't know the Scriptures at all, folks who may not be church attenders, many if not most know about Noah and the ark. After all, sometimes Noah shows up in the ark as a theme of cartoons. A few years later, just going to tease you, A few years ago, there was a Hollywood movie about Noah, which I don't recommend. It really is not worth watching, but it was there. Popular culture knows about Noah. There are, in our culture, there are Noah's Ark restaurants, quite a few of them around the country. Sadly, the one just down in St. Charles is long gone. Many of us remember that, though. There are business ventures called Noah's Ark, like a chain of moving and storage facilities. I don't know why, but they are. America's largest water park up in Wisconsin is called Noah's Ark. While most people know about Noah's Ark, I imagine that to most people, Noah's Ark is just like it's depicted in kids' storybooks, even in many Christian kids' books. It's pictured as a cute, a very quaint story that is regarded by most Americans as simply a fairy tale. But that cute, quaint picture is not what is before us here in Genesis. What we find here in Genesis chapter 6 is portrayed before us as history because it is history. It is actual people and it is a sobering and a stark reality. Last week, Pastor Aaron started us here in chapter 6. And by the way, didn't he do a marvelous job these past couple of weeks in teaching? I appreciate him so much. And... um, now that he's done all the hard stuff, 
uh, we can get to the passages that aren't controversial and difficult. So that I, I um, he he left us off here in chapter six at verse nine, and in the antediluvian, that's remember we talked about that a few weeks ago, a big fancy word for the pre-flood world. That pre-flood world was a world of great wickedness and evil. And in that world, one man stood out, we saw last week, stood out like a single bright star in a jet black sky, like a beautiful diamond against a black velvet background. He stood out like that, unmistakably clear. One man stood out. In verse 8, we see him, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And last week, Pastor Aaron took us to verse 9, which says, as you see it before you there, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. We saw that man standing alone as a godly man. And Noah, our text tells us, was one who was righteous, meaning he was right with God. Not because he was a good man. For as Hebrews 11 reminds us, it says that Noah was an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was righteous not because he was good, Noah was right with God, not because he was good, but because he believed in God by faith. And God, by His grace, as verse 8 told us, by God's favor, gave righteousness to Noah. It's the same way that any one of us are ever right before God. None of us ever gets there by being good, by doing good things. We get there by God's grace through faith. And not of ourselves, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, it is the gift of God, not by works, lest any of us should boast. Noah was a righteous man because he believed God. He was right with God. But the text also went on, we saw last week, and tells us that he is blameless. He was a blameless man. That doesn't mean that he was perfect. What it means was that from a human perspective, when people looked at Noah, they saw a man that they couldn't level charges against. He was a man who believed God. God declared him righteous, made him righteous, and Noah lived out that righteousness in his life. He lived out his faith. And so he was a good man, and one when people who look at him, they'd have to say, yeah, he's a kook. I don't, I don't understand him. I don't get him. I don't agree with him. But he's a good man. He's blameless. The third thing that we see in this verse and that we saw last week was that Noah walked with God. He had a relationship with God that wasn't just he, he showed up at, you know, on Sundays and worshiped God and did his little thing and went home. He had a daily relationship with God where God was, was, it was a conversation, a walk. It was, Every aspect of his life, every minute of his life was in relationship with God. It affected everything he did, everything he thought. He conversed with God. He talked with God. As we pick up today in verse 10, we add something else to this list 
of things of Noah as a godly man. Verse 10, And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What we discover here in this is that Noah is, as a godly man, he is a godly father. Last week in verse 3, we discovered that God declared in verse 3 that man's days, He said, shall be 120 years. In other words, that God was going to destroy mankind in 120 years. In 120 years from now, as we'll see next week, God sends a flood and He wipes out all of mankind. Noah's sons were born at least 20 years after God stamped that expiration date on the antediluvian world, the pre-flood world. How do we know that? Because if you read this text, if you read this chapter, you're not going to find it saying that anywhere here. So, Pastor, where do you come up with that? Well, if we go over, which we will next week, to chapter 7 and verse 6, you'll read this in verse 6, that it tells us that the flood came when Noah was 600 years old. And God pronounced judgment 120 years before the flood. So when God pronounced judgment on the earth, Noah was, you do the math, 600 minus 120, Noah was 480 years old. Now you go back to chapter 5, and at the end of chapter 5, in verse 32, what you read there is that after Noah was 500 years old, he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In other words... Noah's sons were born at least 20 years after God pronounced judgment on that pre-flood world. Now, what does that have to do with anything? It's this. Noah, in an age where all of the world had fallen into wickedness and evil so much that God says there is no one but Noah left. Noah is standing alone as a godly and righteous man. Noah raises three sons. And when those sons grow up, as, we, as this story unfolds before us, we discover that Noah's sons stand with him. When the time comes to enter the ark, they go with Noah. Noah's sons follow him as he follows God. Noah was a successful father. As I was studying this week, I read these words by Pastor Ray Pritchard and I thought they were worth sharing because he says this so much better than I ever thought. Noah's faith saved his entire family. He believed so deeply and obeyed so completely and walked so intimately with God that it was natural for his entire family to do what he did. It is also the power of a godly husband and father. Men, God holds you accountable to set the pace for your entire family. Your wife looks to you for leadership. Your sons and daughters, for better or worse, 
will be like you. If you abdicate your responsibility, your wife will never be able to fully take your place. But if you live out your faith every day, it's natural and normal to expect your family to follow in your steps. Those are powerful and, for us men, convicting words, challenging words. There are no guarantees that if we live as godly men and we live faithfully before our families that they will follow in our footsteps. But by and large, it naturally follows that they will. Not always, but that will be the tendency. And so it calls us and behooves us men to step up to the place that God has called us to be as men, as husbands, as dads. Noah was a godly man in a very ungodly time. Our text continues in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. We see here first a godly man, and then we see in these verses a ruined earth. These verses state for us once again the awful truth and the awful condition of the world that was already stated earlier in the chapter that Pastor Aaron led us through last week. Last week in verse 5 we saw that the earth was wickedness. Man's wickedness was great on the earth. We saw that every intention of man's heart was evil. Not only were his actions evil on the outside, but every intention and every thought of the heart of man was wicked and evil on the inside. Truly, he was bad to the bone. (laughs) So if you're too young to even know that was a song, okay? But it was. Now here in these verses, it adds three times, you might notice in the verses 11 and 12, it was corrupt. Man had corrupted their way and had corrupted the earth. It's intriguing that it uses that word. The word corrupt really literally means ruined. When God sends the flood, it doesn't destroy a nice place with some evil people in it. It destroys a place that has been ruined by evil people in it. God says the only way really to fix this is not just to remove man, it's to wipe the whole place out and start over. It was corrupt. And it was, verse 11 and 13, again it says twice, it was filled with violence. The earth was filled with violence also indicates not just that that, uh, people were violent, but that, that it says the earth was filled with it and so it was filled with violent people. In other words, there's a large population here. There's not just a thousand or a few hundred thousand people on planet earth. The earth is filled with people. Probably millions or billions of people in the earth at this time. A godly man, a ruined earth, 
And then we find that God calls Noah to a colossal task. Verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Noah, build an ark. One of my favorite cartoons. It's fitting here in St. Louis. An ark, Noah. I said an ark. (laughs) Not an arch. (laughs) An ark is not the same thing as an arch. Nor is it, by the way, the same thing as a boat. The word ark doesn't mean, it doesn't translate as boat. The word ark is really a box, a container. It didn't need to be a boat. It didn't have sails for propulsion. It didn't have a steering wheel or a rudder for steering. It is something simply to float and to Keep a large cargo afloat in the midst of the great flood. We only here have a very brief set of instructions before us and details about the ark. I assume God gave other specific instructions to Noah because I doubt that Noah was a structural engineer. I doubt that he understood all that's involved in the in the mechanics and the structure and the in the engineering of building a boat. But what we find here is not language that is flowery, language that is fantastic. What we find is that while there are not lots of details, there are sufficient details. What we realize is we have a story that is grounded in reality, not fiction, not fantasy, not legend, not fairy tale. The details here depict for us, again, reality. God says, build this box, this container. Build it out of gopher wood. We have no idea what kind of tree or wood that is. That was that understanding was lost back in the flood, I imagine. But build it, he says, with rooms or with nests, with pens, with stalls, with places to house the, all the animals and to store the provisions. Make it watertight. Seal it, it says, with inside and out with pitch. A rosinous substance. The, it was the pre-flood version of flex seal. Sure, he would have used that if they had that then. God says, verse 15, this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. And if we got these instructions, we'd be going, what's a cubit? Cubit, many of you know, is the distance from the fingertips to the elbow, which of course is different with different people. The standard among archaeologists and historians is that the minimum distance for a cubit is basically 18 inches. Some have cubits longer than that, but that's basically the standard. If you take that measurement, what you have here is a box, a container, an ark that is, uh, it is 450 feet long, 75 feet across or wide, and 45 feet tall. That is a huge structure. 
a football field and a half in length, four and a half stories tall. As far as we know from history, there was no seagoing vessel ever ever made larger than that until 1856. It puts it in the class of even modern day grand big cargo ships and uh, ocean liners. See, large vessel. Modern shipbuilders tell us that the proportions of this this ark are ideal, making it very stable even in the roughest of seas and almost impossible to capsize or to tip over. It says, make a roof for the ark, verse 16. Finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. This ark, and there's one that's built to scale in Kentucky, you can go see and walk through. Many of you have. I know if uh, you've seen your pictures and talked to you. It's huge. It had a roof to protect it from the rain, to keep it from filling with water in the torrential downpours. It it had some sort of opening, a window, it says about 18 inches tall at the top, possibly all the way around the top, designed in such a way that water doesn't come in, but it allows ventilation, uh, letting fresh air in and animal smells out. <laughs> You'd want a lot of that. This and um, to let light in, very practical. Says that it has a door, set the door. There's only one door in the ark. We don't know where exactly, but somewhere it says on the side. Build it, it says, with lower, second, and third decks. It's three stories inside, three interior decks. All of this, when you put it together, you realize it's a massive construction project. How could Noah possibly build something like this? Well, the answer is he probably hired help. Maybe not. He may have been working on this for up to, we don't know when God uh, gave the instructions to Noah to build the ark. We know that God, 120 years before the flood, said, I'm going to destroy mankind. And it's going to be 120 years. God may have told Noah right then. Here's the job. Noah may have worked on this for 120 years. Or it could have been any time between then and the flood, but certainly not a day or two or a month or even a year before. This took a lot of time to build. Especially if manpower was just a few. Noah and his sons. Verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. The purpose of this ark is survival. God says, I'm going to send a flood and every air-breathing land creature will die. When we think about that, that is staggering. Every air-breathing land creature will die except for those in the ark. God says, so Noah, build an ark. Secondly, God tells Noah in uh, verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you 
And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Noah, I'll make a covenant with you. You bring your family on board. You bring them onto the ark with you and I will rescue you. Again, what a challenge, men, if you can imagine being in Noah's shoes when God gives that message and says, I'm going to destroy everything and everyone, every air-breathing creature on the earth, but you bring your family on board the ark and they'll be saved. There's some motivation to win your family over. But truthfully, the stakes are not less in our day, are they? For our families, we are dealing with eternal souls. How we need to be committed to leading our families and pointing them to Christ. Bring your family on board. Thirdly, verse 19 God says, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come to, into you to keep them alive. Noah, you are to build an ark. You are to bring your family on board. And Noah, you are to bring animals on board. Two of every sort, every kind, a male and a female of each, the birds and the, the animals, the creeping things. And those who scoff at this, many say, how in the world could one man, how could Noah possibly round up all of these animals and all of these kinds of animals? Impossible. And the text clearly says he didn't have to. What does it say? God says they will come to you. God does the roundup. Then they scoff and they say, could they really fit? How in the world could all the animals, all the kinds of animals possibly fit into this boat, this box? Well, it's a legitimate question. And I'm not qualified and smart enough to answer the question, could they fit? But there are a lot of people who have tackled this question. A lot of very smart folks, scientists, engineers, they've all sat down and sharpened their pencils and gone to work. Will it fit? Well, you can go online, you can go to books, and you'll find all kinds of studies out there, and they'll basically bring you to some of the same conclusions I'll read or just share with you. Could they really fit? Well, first of all, you've got to remember, of course, that of all the animals on earth, you don't have to take any of the ones that can live in the water. They're going to do just fine. It's a flood. Secondly, you don't have to take two of every variety of animals, but only two of each kind of animal. To understand or to illustrate it, in other words, you need two dogs. But you don't need two Yorkshire Terriers and two Shelties, and two Dachshunds, and two Golden Retrievers, and two St. Bernards, and two, you see, all you need is two dogs. Because, and especially I know God will send the right dogs along to have the right genetics to produce all the dogs He wants to produce, all the different varieties of dogs. 
All the DNA is going to be in a pair of dogs to produce all kinds of varieties of dogs. And so it is with every kind of animal. And so with what's left, Henry Morris in his excellent book, The Genesis Record, states that the experts in taxonomy estimate that there are less than 18,000 species or kinds of mammals and reptiles and birds and amphibians that exist today. The ones that need to go, the animals that need to go on the ark. So if you take that number and just double it to allow for extinct species and ones we may have left out or forgotten about or nobody's counted yet, and then you double that because you've got to have a male and female of each, then you round up. At most, you need to house about 75,000 animals. Can they fit in the ark? Well, the ark, they tell us, has the cargo space that equivalent or equals to roughly 520 to 560 modern railroad stock cars. That would be a long train, by the way. You don't want to be stuck at the train stop waiting for that to go by. Those 520 to 560 railroad cars, they tell us, will hold roughly 125,000 animals the size of a sheep. And why that's significant is because if you take all the animals known to exist and you average out their size, it's smaller than a sheep. Yes, there are some very big ones, but most animals are not very large. Most of them are rather small. And if God wanted to conserve space, He could even take most of the large ones and just get smaller versions, you know, the juvenile versions. And they grow up while they're on the board. Regardless, if you take them full grown and everything else, according to Morris and other researchers who've done the same study, what you come to is it takes less than 60% of the space that's on the ark to house all the kinds of animals that in the world that need to go on the ark. The other 40% is there for passengers, for uh, shuffleboard courts. No, that's... Uh, <laughs> Food, water. Which brings us to our next point. God says, build an ark. Bring your family on board. Bring the animals on board. In verse 21, also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall, be, it shall serve as food for you and for them. God is practical. He says, here's the things you need. Bring food and supplies. You know... I spent 20-something years as a youth pastor. I helped get food together for lots of weeks of summer camps. When I read this, I'm just like, wow. <laughs> I'm always blown away when I see how much stuff it takes to run a week of camp. I can't imagine getting all the stuff together for a year of a zoo. How do you even know what to bring? Again, I'm sure God gave whatever instructions were necessary Noah, here's the list. But the food had to be purchased, and most likely not purchased because I doubt that there was a Sam's or an Aldi. And how do you buy the food for all these? You probably have to grow it, raise it, harvest it, prepare it, store it, and then at the right time load it onto the ark. What a massive undertaking all of this was. And then, 
The skeptic would say, how could they possibly manage to feed and care for all these animals on the ark? I don't know. But God got it covered. It's, you know, there's very many of the animals in the world that hibernate. And I have a feeling that God probably caused many of the animals on the ark, if not most of them, to go into some type of hibernation, either for some or all of the time that they're on board. Like some parents I've heard of, by the way, who are going on a long road trip and give their kids cold medicine. We have never done that, by the way. That's never happened in our family. And I'm not recommending that. I've just heard of parents who did that. And maybe God did that with the animals on the ark. I I just say that because my son just took a road trip yesterday. and He didn't do that. We don't do that. I'll get out of the hole and uh, move on. Last point. Because what I notice in this last verse is really the most amazing of all of these things. These are amazing things as we look at this godly man in this ungodly world. As we look at the awful condition of this ruined earth, as we see the colossal task that God put before Noah, to me the real wow factor of this story is verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah did everything God said. In the next chapter, we'll be there next week, again, God God, uh, calls for them to go on board the ark. And after they're on board the ark and loaded, God says and comments, verse 5, And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. I think he says it twice because it truly is amazing. When I read this and thought about it this week, I was blown away. I was blown away because Noah was obedient despite the difficulty and the enormity of this task. If we're honest, well, at least when I'm honest, if God came to me and said, hey Keith, I want you to build an ark, I'd go a fishing boat, cool. An ocean liner, uh-uh. You got the wrong guy. That's too big. I've never done anything like that. I'm You know, I'm not qualified, I'm not whatever. I'd have all the excuses. And just imagine if I'm going to go home and say, hey, Janet, God called me to build a boat. Actually, not a boat, an ark. And she'd go, well, you know, we like boating, that's cool. Well, it's really, it's kind of bigger than that. It's like an ocean liner in the backyard. That wouldn't fly very well. And by the way, it's going to take every bit of our time and energy and resources from now until the day that God is going to flood the world. I'm just amazed. An impossible job from a human standpoint at the start. Who would do this? 
Noah was obedient despite the difficulty and the enormity of the task. But not only that, he was obedient despite the fact that there was no visible evidence that anything bad was going to happen. God says, Noah, I'm going to wipe out the world in a flood, so you need to build an ark to save your family and all the animals. Matter of fact, if I, and I may have it totally wrong, there's so much we don't know about the antediluvian world. But it appears that perhaps if what was in place in Genesis chapter 2 was in, is still going on, that it never rained on the earth till this point. And I'm inclined to believe that for many reasons, but that, that the earth was watered by a mist, it says, it goes up from the ground, that there's subterranean streams that water the plant, the planet, and there's, it, there's heavy dews that, that water things, and there's no rain. Imagine living in a world where there's been no rain, so nobody has ever experienced a flood because there's no rain to cause a flood. So you haven't seen a local flood, so what's a flood? No evidence of an impending flood. No wonder when God says through Noah that this is going to happen, that life goes on as usual as Jesus described the time in the days of Noah. He said people were eating and drinking, not meaning that they're that they're getting plastered and they're and, and it's talk, not talking about sin. It's just they're eating and drinking, the normal stuff of life, and marrying and giving in marriage, with, which isn't talking about sexual immorality as so much as it is just saying that people are doing the normal stuff. And marriage is always about looking forward. We're looking forward to a life together. People are saying life is just going to go on like it always has and it, and it is right now. It's just the daily stuff they are going on because they're not expecting the flood because you've got to be kidding me. What's a flood? The only thing that Noah had to go on was the Word of God and Noah said, that's good enough. Isn't that staggering? Because if I'm honest... And I have a feeling most of you are like me. I find it really hard to believe God when the only thing I have is His Word. Sit back and go, well, what else is there to look at here to back this up? That's why it's staggering. That's why Hebrews chapter 11 uses Noah as one of the prime and great examples for faith. And the way it defines faith, it says in Hebrews 11, you know these verses, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for, including Noah, as it just goes on a couple of verses later and it says, Noah believed God and built an ark. Staggering faith. Obedience despite difficulty of the task. Obedience despite no evidence of the flood that he could see. Noah had faith in God and confidence in God's Word and he staked literally everything on what God said. His time, his money, his reputation, his family, his future, and his very life. He trusted God with it all. Obedience despite... Ridicule. Because of both of the things just before that, the difficulty and the no evidence, Noah most certainly faced constant ridicule in that wicked world. 
I'm sure as he was building this boat and it gets bigger and bigger and it's as, as the days and weeks and months and years go by as this project is going on, I'm sure that Noah became a tourist stop, a tourist destination for everybody in the world. Word gets out after a few decades. Hey, there's this guy over there building this big, what do we call it, an ark. He's a nut job. And so people set up little tourist stands and food, you know, they got food vendors and, and you know, they come on out. Hey, I think he's out there today. Yeah, there he is. And they have tour directors and crazy Noah. He was so big. He was so ugly. He was so useless. Worst of all, it was so offensive. Peter, in Second Peter chapter 2, says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. We don't have any other record that Noah was a preacher, but he preached at the very least by his actions every day he worked on the ark, and I imagine he used words as well. He said, folks, God is going to send a judgment. He's going to send a flood. And anybody not in this ark is going to die. Every single day that he worked on the ark, it was a word of judgment to the world around. And just as words of judgment and reality offend people today, so it offended people then. The response, though, among the people was not concern and repentance. At very best, it was indifference and most likely I imagine it was a lot of scorn and ridicule from Noah's contemporaries. Because at the end of however long it was that Noah worked on the ark, possibly a century or more, there was not a single convert other than those in his family. And what else would the world do with a man like that? You make fun of him. Noah obeyed despite ridicule. And any of us who have ever been ridiculed for our faith know exactly how hard that is, isn't it? Fourthly, he was obedience over the long haul. We tend to think, yeah, Noah built an ark, and yeah, that, it was hard for him, it was a big job, and, and he, he endured a lot of you know, mocking from people. That was tough. But then we fail to appreciate what it was for him to do that for a day and a week and a month and six months and a year and another year and another year and another year and another year and a decade and another decade and another decade. Possibly for more than a hundred years. What amazing obedience we see in this remarkable man of faith. Two closing thoughts and two questions that go along with those. The first is this. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Aaron took us through chapter 5. There we met a man named Enoch. Remember what it said about Enoch? Enoch walked with God. Only other person it says that of is Noah. Noah walked with God. 
in the Scriptures. Just those two. What happened to Enoch? Says one day, God took him. Hebrews tells us he went to heaven without dying. Noah walks with God and what happens? Hey Noah, I got a little job for you. A hundred years of hard labor building an ark. And then you get to spend a little over a year inside that with a bunch of animals taking care of them. And then you get to come out into this world and start all over from scratch. Is that fair? That's what the kids would say. It's not fair. And I say this. Both Noah and Enoch walked with God. And God walked with them. And God was faithful to both men who were faithful to Him. But I recognize that as, I, as this as I thought about it this week is we don't get to choose the path that God puts before us. And from our human perspective and our human uh, experience, one path may be really rocky and difficult and the other is really easy. And we won't understand it. We won't understand why until we get to heaven someday. But in every case, God is faithful. With that recognition, I ask this question, or one that I propose a question we need to ask of ourselves. Will I aim to obey God? Am I willing to obey God even if it means life gets harder, not easier? Noah was. He and Enoch had the same relationship with God. Noah got the hard road. But he believed God. And he walked faithfully. The second thought as I went through this passage, I have a feeling that many of us, the first of the year, made a New Year's resolution or two. Some of you, you don't have to raise your hand. I just wonder if you did. I wonder how many of those New Year's resolutions are still ongoing. You see, if, we're, if we fit the national statistics, we've all pretty much wiped out already, right? That's the way they work. How easy it is to make a momentary decision, to make a commitment, but how difficult it is to follow through. When we tend to think of the great heroes of the faith, the ones that tend to come to mind are men and women who encountered a time of great, uh, of great crisis and great danger. And in the midst of that great danger, they stood firm for God. Or they came to this moment of great crisis, and in this moment of great crisis, they, they expended themselves in serving God in these moments of you know, these extraordinary moments. And they became a hero. That's what we tend to think of. But as I understand the Scripture, and as I was thinking this week, 
I realize that in heaven there is recognition, there is honor, there is reward in heaven for those who very quietly, sacrificially, selflessly, faithfully obey and serve God in the little things, the daily things, over the long haul. Such people are the heroes in heaven. Very few of us will ever experience that moment of opportunity to do some great heroic action in a moment of time. But all of us have the opportunity to be a consistent, faithful servant of God in the dailies. And so the second question is, well, I aim to strive and to obey God in the dailies over the long haul. Let's pray. Father, what a, an extraordinary passage. So much here. Some of it is very sobering as we look at a world that perished because of their wickedness and we realize that we live in a world that overall is filled and overflowing with wickedness and Your Word has promised there is a day of judgment coming. How it calls for us as those who, uh, well, if there's anyone who has yet to to find the ark of safety, the ark of refuge, Jesus Christ, and put their faith in Him, and they need to, to know there's a Savior and trust in Jesus. But for all of us who know Him, how it behooves us to be those who go and share the good news of Jesus with, with the lost world. They need to know there's a Savior, there's a way out of the coming judgment. And how it calls for us to live as faithful people. The reality, Father, is that there is a tendency for us to fold sometimes when the going gets difficult. May we learn from Noah and follow his example and be faithful when it gets tough. There's a tendency for us to look for being faithful in the big things and we miss being faithful in the little things and the dailies and over the long haul. But in the reality, that is exactly where the great test of faithfulness is. May we be those men and those women and those young people and those kids who follow You faithfully in the dailies and over the long haul until Jesus comes back. It's in His name we pray. Amen.